Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home. Debit card users, listen up. You've worked hard for your money. Now it's time to make it work even harder for you. With Discover Cashback Debit, everyone can get cash back on everyday debit card purchases. That's right. Earn on things like gas, groceries, and even that midday latte. And to top it off, there are no fees, period. Yep, that means you won't be charged fees on your checking account. Transaction eligibility and terms at discover.com slash cashbackdebit. Discover Bank. Member FDIC. Guys, I'm officially on tour. I am so excited to hang out with you, but I need you to know this tour is a little different than anything you might have heard me or seen me do before. Still love Jesus, but I cuss a little, and that's what's gonna happen tonight, so get ready. Usually when I speak publicly, it's about how to grow and become a better version of yourself, and yes, I want to talk about that. Don't tell me that you can't do difficult things because that is one teeny tiny example of something that men will never have to deal with. But more than anything, I want to laugh. It's honestly been a really hard year for me and my kids. I just want to tell stories with my friends and laugh until we pee our pants a little bit. The second thing we're going to do is a live Q&A. Oh yeah, no, if you raise your hands, like you're in. <laughs> We get to learn and understand more about ourselves when we hear someone else's stories. The third thing that's different about this tour is that every single location has a bar. I wanted to have a girls' night out. I wanted to have a place where you could get your sister, call your mama, get your neighbor from down the street, and you could come out and you could have a glass of cheap wine and you could watch a show and laugh and have fun and meet new people. The fourth thing, don't bring your husband. Yeah. Don't, I said it. If you got a husband that will laugh about period jokes, bikini waxes, mom stories, bring them on down. If you're not sure if your man thinks that's funny, he doesn't. Come by yourself and make friends. Treat yourself to a night where you are dating you. It's gonna be a lot of fun. That is my number one intention with this tour is that I want to have fun and I know that we will. So check out the show notes to get a link to upcoming cities. Put the word out. Love you. I'll see you soon. How can you ever stay happy if you're constantly focusing on what's missing? You can't. It doesn't matter how smart you are. It doesn't matter what good person you are. It's like, think of it as software. That software will not make you happy. Yeah. It'll make you worry. It'll make right. you feel less than. It'll make you think you're not enough. It'll make you all. And it's just a habit of thought. Whichever decision you make will completely change your biochemistry, change what you feel. And then we get habits of these meanings, right? So then you feel the same thing over and over again. And then you think it's you. Oh, this is my lot in life. No, it's just a pattern you've done. It's just a habit. You can change the habit. Hi, I'm Rachel Hollis, and this is my podcast. I spend so many hours of every single week reading and listening to podcasts and watching YouTube videos and trying to find out as much as I can about the world around me. And that's what we do on this show. We talk about everything, life and how to be an entrepreneur. What happened to dinosaurs? What's the best recipe for fried chicken? What's the best plan for intermittent fasting? What's going on with our inner child? How's therapy working out for you? Whatever it is my guests are into, I want to unpack it so that we can all understand. These are conversations. This is information for the curious. This is the Rachel Hollis Podcast. Hey guys, it's Rachel, and welcome to another episode in our Mastermind series. 
These are episodes where we pick a single topic and we get advice from some of the greatest experts, teachers, most successful people in their field, all talking about one thing. In today's episode, I thought it would be interesting to dive into how successful people get into working on themselves. Because chances are, if you're here, if you're listening to the show, you're working on yourself in some way. You're into personal development, or maybe you're starting a health journey, maybe you're building your business, whatever it is, chances are you're here because you're trying to grow and become better. And I don't know about you, but I am fascinated in learning how other people do that, especially when it's those that are super duper successful. So that's what we're going to talk about today. We're going to hear from people like Tony Robbins, Rain Wilson, Stacy Flowers, and Gretchen Rubin. And they're all going to tell their story of how they got started, what they learned first, and what was most helpful to them. And my intention in this conversation is that you're going to get something out of it, maybe because you're new to the journey and you're going to hear something that resonates with you. Or maybe you've been doing this forever, but someone's going to say something today that really sparks a thought that drives you in a new direction. So that's what we're doing in today's Mastermind. I hope you enjoy. Failure is uh, so important for being a human being. Yeah. And, you know, in my advanced age, Rachel, <laughs> I, I have the benefit of, you know, the, the hindsight and kind of looking at that. And I think I imagine a lot of listeners do too. Of like, you can look through your life and go, wow, what key failures actually became transformative successes? And I know for me, like I got cast in this Broadway show when I was a, a, a struggling actor in New York, d- dirt broke, trying to get by, catering, waiting tables, driving a moving van. And I got cast in a, in a Broadway play. And I knew it was coming up in like five months. And it, that created all this pressure because I was like, oh my gosh, I have to be really good because I'm going to get a New York Times review and I'm going to sign with the William Morris Agency and maybe I'll get nominated for a Tony Award. And I had all of this kind of stuff going on. I was all in my head. Um, I had a terrible rehearsal process. I was really second-guessing myself the whole time. I was very tense, very sweaty. And, you know, sure enough, I did a terrible performance. I was bad. I was B-A-D. I was really bad. And people are like, oh, no, I'm sure you weren't that. No. I was really bad. I was, if you had seen that play, you'd be like, that guy's not good. Right. It was hell. It was hell. There's nothing worse. Well, there are things that are worse. <laughs> um, cancer's worse. There's there's very little that's worse than knowing you suck in a Broadway play. Yeah. And you're doing eight shows a week and you're and you're on it for six months and you're showing up and you know you're bad and you're trying your best and you're trying to make it better, but you can't really at that point. And it goes on and on and on, show after show after show. I would, my wife was going to graduate school at the time. I would sob to her in the middle of the night. And I just, it was just horrible. And then it ended and I fired my useless agents. And I was just like, you know what? Screw that. I'm never doing that again. I'm never going to try and please other people or do something in some way that I think people are looking for and put that kind of pressure on myself. I need to be me, I'm quirky, I'm weird, I need to bring who I am to my roles and not try and be some like ideal Tony-nominated New York actor. And I get my clothes at thrift stores and I wear glasses and this is who I am. And uh, I found my voice through a horrible failure, bad reviews, bad reviews. You're a young actor. You're just out of acting school and you get bad review in the New York Times. It sucks. Yeah. It hurts. Yeah. And and I really believe that I would never have gotten the office had I not gone through that failure on Broadway that that enabled me to play kind of quirky, weird, alienated characters in a way that a few years later, five years later, six years later – I was able to, you know, to land, land the office thanks to one of my biggest failures. Yeah. I have a good friend who I know he's just been struggling for a long time. He's in the show business world and producer and director and whatnot. And, 
I just knew he was just very unhappy for years and he was just complaining and seemed miserable and he tried moving and that didn't really work and he tried this and that and he was just really struggling. And then finally, you know, I I called him and he's like, I'm, I'm gonna need to, you know, wait a while to call you back. And, and then I spoke to him and he said like, I had a straight up nervous breakdown. Mm. I really hit bottom and I just, it was just like, textbook nervous breakdown i couldn't move i couldn't get out of bed i was in tears all the time and now he's like he's cleared the decks and he's just like anything that is not important to me i'm putting aside he's focusing on his family his recovery right now like the one or two projects that he's really passionate about and you could hear a kind of a clarity in his voice in a way because he allowed himself to Maybe he didn't allow himself. Maybe it. Maybe life did it for him. Yeah. But life picked him up and slammed him on the ground in such a way that I truly believe that had he just hovered in a state of chronic dissatisfaction, he never would have kind of found, you know, his 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 mission. And uh, you know, this goes to kind of a, a spiritual concept that I'm really uh, interested in, and I, I try and address in my book, which is suffering and why there is suffering. Why, why, from a spiritual perspective, is there suffering? Why is there, why did God not make a world in which we just all had nice lives? Yeah. Why do kids get cancer? Why do car accidents happen to teenagers? Why do really good people, bad things happen to them? Like, and that's a, it's a tough conundrum, you know, and it's, I don't pretend to have the answers, but when you look at the Buddhist tradition and the Buddha, you know, the four noble truths and the kind of the essential teachings of the Buddha is number one, like life is suffering. But then when you look at that word suffering in the Sanskrit and the original translation, the word was dukkha, which means essentially it's hard to describe, but there's so many variations of what the word means, but it essentially means dissatisfaction. It's like life is dissatisfaction. It's not really suffering as like, it's, it's, it's a wrestling with and being and things not working out and the you being at odds with outcomes, right? And trying to control outcomes and whatnot. And that helps me so much just kind of going to that teaching of like, life is suffering, life is dukkha. Like as I wake up, Rachel, a lot with just a chronic dissatisfaction. Like, uh, why am I not being offered that role? And why didn't this work out? Do you and, really? Yeah, and why yeah. didn't this person call me back? And like, and how come this didn't work out the way I wanted it to? And gosh darn it, like, how come we're out of my favorite corn chips or or whatever it is? But there, so I I have to do a lot of work because I also a very anxious person. I suffer from an anxiety disorder, and I've had a lot of issues with anxiety throughout my life. Like, and that goes hand in hand with dukkha, with with this chronic dissatisfaction of like. I have to do work to rectify that dissatisfaction on a daily basis, which I'm so grateful for. Again, so we talk about like how failure, how suffering can lead us down a, a good path. Like I'm so grateful for the fact that I have to get up in the mor morning and read some spiritual writing when I have my shit together, you know, do a cold plunge, do some exercise to kind of be in my body, take just even a simple 15 minutes on and meditation and prayer and kind of realign. I have a gratitude text chain that I do with my friends cool. and like these things that help me realign my day because we go one day at a time from a day of chronic dissatisfaction to a great, to a day of surrender, a day of, of peace, a day of like uh, in the Baha'i faith tradition, they call it radiant acquiescence. So uh, living in a state of radiant acquiescence, which I struggle with and it's not always, it's super, difficult, but it's, it's a daily battle. But I think the, the Buddha frames it so beautifully, but I think that goes along with what your, your father was also teaching. What do you want to be doing in 10 years? And I, and I thought about it and I was really like open and I was like, I'm want to be doing exactly what I'm doing right now. Cool. I, there's not any other yeah something else, you know, I want to be doing some acting and some writing, directing. I want to write books. I want to talk to interesting people on yeah. podcasts. I want to be with my wife. I want to travel the world. I want to. I want to play competitive tennis, and uh, I'm I'm doing it. Yeah. So and and then so I just felt such uh, relief and satisfaction there, 
around that. But you know what? I'm going to wake up tomorrow and be like, God damn it. A pharmacy didn't send my blood pressure medication. Where are my chips? And how come... That's How true. come he got that role in that movie yeah. and I didn't? Yeah. And my wife was mean to me. <laughs> anxiety is really the um, is the disease of the modern age, I think. And it underlies so much of what's going wrong in the world. And it's something that needs to be dealt with. And he always says, like, when you're in anxiety, it's because you don't know what you need. So he's always turning like, if, when you're feeling anxious, you stop, you breathe and go, what do I need? Mm. What do I need on a core level at my, in my deepest self? What do I, do I need a hug? Yeah. Do I need a nap? Do I need some validation? Do I need some reassurance? Do I need to meditate? Do I need to exercise? Do I need to talk to somebody? You know, what are these like essential human things that I need? And and so being able to self-diagnose what I need, even give myself a hug and do a little self-care or something like that, or or what do I need? Maybe what I need is to reach out and do some service for someone else, yeah. you know, and do something good for someone else. But that's how you address anxiety. Anxiety is like a series of unmet needs. Yeah, I view uh, the spiritual path as a twofold path. So... Uh, and I compare it early on in the book because I try and bring a little comedy to the equation to two great 70s television shows. Yes. Uh, Kung Fu and Star Trek. Okay. So Kung Fu, for those who don't know, is about Kwai Chang Kane who is kicked out of the Shaolin Monastery and he goes to America as a Chinese person in the cowboy days in the 1880s and he's wandering, looking for his brother, but he he fights Kung Fu and he has incredible wisdom that he gained uh, from his training at, at the monastery, Buddhist uh, wisdom and Taoist wisdom. And so that's one path we take, all of us. We are all Kwai Chang Kane. We're all on a journey, on our path, trying to make ourselves better, trying to share our wisdom, trying to help people as we go along because he would always help people and fight like racist cowboys and stuff. And then <laughs> the other one is Star Trek, which is humanity, in Star Trek, what has happened in Star Trek that has allowed the Enterprise to take off and boldly search for strange new worlds? Well, there was a World War III on planet Earth. Things got really bad. And guess what? Humanity arose to the occasion, found world peace, conquered racism, conquered income inequality, uh, conquered sexism, and lives in harmony and lives in harmony with the planet and with science and technology and is then able to go spread around the universe. And, and so these are these two paths. So what you're describing, I talk about in my book as well, because, and it's a specific, it's especially a Los Angeles thing. Oh, it's so a Los Angeles yeah, yeah. thing. It's, it's a very, it's a very goop kind of centered mm-hmm. thing, which mm-hmm. is this kind of narcissistic, uh, everything is narcissism and like me, 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 how does this benefit me? And uh, essentially anything it's a fine line because self-care is so important, but it's like this yin and the yang. We do self-care so that we can serve others, right? We we enrich our inner lives. We study holy writings. We pray, we meditate. We we do yoga or a physical practice. We, we have devotion. We connect with nature. We do all of this work so that we can take that, that mana, that energy, and we can share it with others and we can serve others and we can work at a soup kitchen and we can raise our children and we can volunteer at the school and we can raise money for nonprofits and we can help our sick friends and whatnot. And that's, and then that in turn feeds us again and recharges that spiritual battery so that we can go out and serve more. And so there's this constant yin and yang dance between that Kung Fu and that Star Trek part of ourselves because then humanity can progress. But as long as we stay in a kind of a spirituality that's all about, I'm gonna go do ayahuasca every other weekend and I'm gonna meditate four hours a day and have disassociate my spiritual practice from my daily life and my daily life of service to others right. and, um, a, and a mission and a purpose, then we're not gonna progress as a species on this planet. And guess what? The stakes are really high, Rachel. This is not, spirituality for me and what I try and bring up in the book is it's not a game. It's not a hippy-dippy, airy-fairy, vague kind of 
crystals and incense type of thing. There's nothing wrong with crystals and incense, but it's a tool that can transform ourselves so that we can help transform humanity and yeah. transform our culture and make the world a better place. And those are the spiritual titans that we really admire. Right. I am taking my four children away this weekend to go skiing. And I think if you're a parent like me, you understand how important it is to have a kitchen available to you when you have four kids, which is why Airbnb is always the place that I head to just make the vacation easier. And I have always used Airbnb as a place to stay, whether it was for work or family or a girl's weekend. But more and more, my friends are using Airbnb in a totally different way as a business, as a way to invest in property and earn money for it. While you're away, your home could be an Airbnb. Hosting can easily fit into your lifestyle and it's a great way to earn some extra money. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Almost every morning of my life, I have oatmeal. Seriously, during the winter, having something hot in the morning really makes a big difference in my day. Quaker has been a trusted name in oatmeal for over 145 years, which means they've been milling oats since before the invention of the zipper, the stop sign, or ballpoint pens. Quaker has something for everyone, whether it's old-fashioned or quick oats that are good for cooking or baking. And while a ton of things have changed, the good stuff remains the same. Quaker, getting up to some good since 1877. Look for Quaker Oats at your local grocery store. Guys, no two listeners of the show are exactly alike, which means that no two vacations you take are going to be exactly alike either. And if you're looking for a place that will serve all of you, Texas has a vast landscape of cultures, regions, destinations, and activities that allow for an infinite number of different travel experiences. I love Texas so much, I moved my family there for five years. Because here's the deal, Texas has it all. Are you a beach person? We got you. If you love a rugged vacation, not my jam, but there's plenty of campgrounds, hiking trails, and state parks galore. My favorite part about Texas the food. It is the thing I miss the absolute most. Whether you love barbecue or Tex-Mex or just want to be in cities that take their food very seriously. You can enjoy live music, visit internationally recognized art museums, and check out thrilling cowboy experiences. Visit TravelTexas.com slash get your own to get the only trip to Texas that matters. Yours. That's TravelTexas.com slash get your own. Uh, years ago, when I was growing up, I grew up pretty poor and a rough life. My mom is the most important person in my life. She's now passed, uh, but she had a rough time um, when she used uh, alcohol and prescription drugs. And so I became more of a social psychologist uh, because I had to be able to manage her states. Yeah. And I'm grateful. I, if my mom had been how I thought she should have been, I wouldn't be the man I am. So I'm beyond grateful to her. But as a result of that kind of tough breakdown or growing up, I had to try and figure out answers. And I had four different fathers. And we had times when there was no food. The reason I provide 100 million meals a year is not because I'm such a nice guy. It's like my family suffered, I suffered, I don't want anybody else to suffer. So, you know, it's, it's, it's a passion for me. But my life has changed because there's a knock at the door. I go to the door. This big guy's there. And my parents are shouting back and forth, saying things you can't take back. And the guy goes, he's holding giant groceries in each hand, like bag. And he had an empty pan with a frozen turkey, uncooked turkey on the ground. He'd sat down beside him. And he says, your father here. And I was like, like we're not going to die. We'd had saltine crackers and stuff. But we weren't going to have a Thanksgiving dinner, right? And I was like, just one moment, man. I go to my daddy. He and my mom are screaming at each other. You know, I got my younger brother, younger sister trying to get them not to hear it. 
I said, Dad, the door, the door. She got the door for you. He goes, you answer. I said, I did it. He won't talk to me. He's here for you. And I was the most excited I can remember being in years in that moment because I just knew this is going to change Thanksgiving. We're going to be so happy. My dad opens the door and looks at this man and got angry. And he goes, we don't accept charity. And he went to just close the door in the man's face. And the man's foot was down here and so it bounced off his foot and stayed open, which made my dad matter. And then he, the man said, sir, sir, this is, I'm just the delivery guy. Somebody knows you're having a tough time. Everybody has a tough time. They want you to have a beautiful Thanksgiving. My dad said, we don't want to take charity. He started to close the door again, hits the foot again. My dad's getting madder. And then my, this man said this, I'll never forget. He saw me, I'm sure I look crestfallen. And he said, sir, please don't let your ego get in the way of taking care of your family. I thought my dad was going to kill him. Veins in the side of his face were exploding. I'm just, and there was this long moment, like waiting for the bomb to ignite. And he just took the food and closed the door and never said, thank you. I was shocked. I was stunned. I was sad. Like, I was so excited. Number one, there was food. (laughs) Number two, we're going to have this family thing. And my father left our family shortly thereafter. And I, I carry his name. I had four fathers. He's the one that touched me the most. And so I was devastated. But about a year later, just as a kid, I started thinking this through. Like, what? How come I was so excited? And how come he was so upset? And I began to piece together. And now I've used this the rest of my life. So there's three decisions we make every moment we're alive. My, mad, my dad made them that day. So did I. But we made them differently. And the problem with these three decisions for most people is they're made out of habit. Like about... You know, if you listen to social psychologists, about 48% of what we do is habit. What's great about habit? You don't have to think. What's bad about habit? You do the same thing. (laughs) If it doesn't work, keep doing the same thing. So if you make these three decisions consciously, you can change your whole life. And they're really simple. The first decision you make is what are you going to focus on? So what did my dad focus on? He had not provided enough food for his family. How do I know that? He muttered it, talked about it continuously. He was really angry. What did I focus on? Easy for me. I was just a kid, right? food. This is amazing. We're going to have this great Thanksgiving, right? So right away, whatever you focus on controls what you feel. So if you're thinking, oh my God, my kid's going to get killed or where are they or they're dying? You know, we've all done that. And then you're sick in your tummy and then they're fine, right? Right. You know, and you had all these adrenaline going through you and so forth, right? So focus equals feeling, but there are habits of focus. So like if I asked your audience, I've asked you, what do you think most people focus on more? What they have or what's missing? What's missing? hundred percent. And even overachievers focus on what's missing, Rachel. Yeah. Because that's why they're on the hamster wheel, no matter how successful they are, they're never fully happy. Right. How can you ever stay happy if you're constantly focusing on what's missing? You can't. It doesn't matter how smart you are. It doesn't matter what good person you are. It's like, think of it as software. That software will not make you happy. Yeah. It'll make you worry. It'll make right. you feel less than. It'll make you think you're not enough. It'll make you all. And it's just a habit of thought. How about this one? Which one do you think people do more of? Focus on what they can or can't control? Can't. Without a doubt. And by the way, in COVID, that's been magnified because there are lots of things we can't control. We can influence them, but we right. can't control them. But there are lots of things we can control. Yeah. Our weight, the most important things we can control. But no one talks about it, right? So when you're constantly focused on what you can't control and what's missing, you tell me what kind of emotions would that person have. No matter how smart they are, no matter how good-hearted they are, no matter what a good Christian or religious person they are, whatever kind of religion they have, what are they going to feel? Suffering. But I would say, speaking of my audience, biggest issue she faces is anxiety. And everything that you just said is what's adding to that, right? Well, then let me add a third piece to the cake, okay? Which do you think people focus on more, the past, the present, or the future? Now, we do all three, but where do you think most people spend their time? The past. Past is, for people that are unhappy, it is the past. Yeah. For people that are stressed, it's the future. Future, 100%. <laughs> right? Most achievers focus on the future. It's actually great to anticipate right. the future. But when you're missing what's here, and then what makes it worse is when you get in a fear state, or you're thinking about what's missing and what you can't control, right. then what part of the future do you create? You make up a future right. that's not a compelling one right. that creates more anxiety. Well, and your subconscious also doesn't know the difference between the things you're imagining, you which is it. what's giving you the anxiety. You got it. You got yes. it. So you have it directly in your head. So now you're living it. You're living that experience. So with my father, just go back to that for a second, he focused on he had not taken care of his family, and that was the first decision. That alone would put you in a horrible place. Second decision is, what does this mean? So the minute you focus on something, whether you know it or not consciously, you can do it consciously, but most people don't. You go, what does this mean? Is this person attacking me? Are they dissing me? Are they challenging me? Are they coaching me? 
Are they loving me? Whichever answer you come up with will instantly change your biochemistry. Right. It'll change what you feel and change the third decision, what you decide to do. Because if right. you're pissed, you're going to behave differently than if you're feeling grateful. If something happens to is God and it's not what you want or it feels horrible, is God punishing me? That's what some people come up with. Is God challenging me? Is this problem a gift from God? Or is it nothing to do with God? I'm just a lazy little brat. <laughs> I haven't done my part, right? right? Whichever decision you make will completely change your biochemistry, change what you feel. And then we get habits of these meanings, right? So then you feel the same thing over and over again. And then you think it's you. Oh, this is my lot in life. No, it's just a pattern you've done. It's just a habit. It can change the habit. And so think about it. So my dad is like, okay, I didn't take care of my family. What does that mean? I'm worthless. And what does that make him feel? Pretty easy to tell. How do I know he's worthless? He muttered in his breath for weeks before he left. And what he decided to do, leave our family. I'm worthless. I don't belong here. It was devastating. But I look back on it, and it was the greatest day of my life because that's why I feed 100 million people a year. Because would I really cared if I hadn't lost that? Would I really care if I hadn't been through that pain? I'd love to believe I would, but I don't know if I would. Yeah. I, I care because I've experienced it. Right. So for me, it's not intellectual what people are going through. So those three decisions, you know, and third decision is what am I going to do? But just think, the meaning will equal the emotion, and the emotion is your life. Right. Because we have habits of emotion. I always call it your emotional home. Yes. Right? Oh, yes. So I understand the challenges of multitasking. If you don't take control of your mind daily for just 10 minutes, you're going to have a rough ride. Right. But if you go through just three minutes of gratitude, like three things you're grateful for, and you don't remember it over there. Like I remember going on a roller coaster. You remember the front of the roller coaster going over, like where you feel it. It starts to reprogram because the emotions that mess us up are fear mm. and anger. And gratitude is the solution. You can't be grateful and angry simultaneously. Yep. You can't be grateful and fearful simultaneously. Yeah. So, and then the second part is a part for kind of a blessing, so to speak. People can use a prayer or whatever it is. And then the third part, three minutes, is thinking of three things you want to accomplish but seeing and feeling them is done and feeling grateful for it so that, as you said, the brain doesn't know the difference between something you actually experience and something that you're imagining. And what happens is at the end of 10 minutes, you're ready for the world and you see the world different. You react to things differently. And so that's just a simple daily practice. So in an event, we do it immersively yeah. and we have people transform and you can see it a year later what it's like. But also you can do this for yourself just daily. And also it's just feeding your mind. Yeah. It's like I grew up around cassette tapes, <laughs> you know, and I used to drive down when I had no money and making 40 bucks a week as a janitor, 35 bucks a week as a janitor. And I would save it up and go buy these tape programs. You couldn't go on YouTube and get stuff for free like that. It was like 300 bucks for six cassettes and a workbook. And I tell you that because I valued it. I listened to it again and again and again and again until it became part of me. And those investments I made were the best investments of my entire life because it was so expensive for me at that time and it was, I couldn't waste it. And I'm here today, I'm a product of feeding that mind and heart and spirit. If you think about it, it kind of goes back to what I said, whatever you focus on, you feel. Yeah. So if you think you're, you know, you're supposed to meet your husband, your wife, or boyfriend or girlfriend or someone at seven o'clock for dinner and you get there at seven and they're not there, what do you feel? I asked this of an audience, you know, 10,000 people, you get a lot of people saying pissed off and you get a lot of people saying worried. And then I go, well, what if it's 7.30 and they've not called, they've not shown up and they've not text? I'm really pissed off, really worried. What if it's 8.30 they've not called? Somebody will yell out, I'm full, I didn't wait for the bastard. <laughs> Something like that, you know? But ultimately what you get to see is it's the same, and then the person shows up. Now how do you right. treat them? Right, right. Because right. the so, person who's yeah. upset is saying they don't care, they're out screwing around with somebody else. Yeah. They do this every time. So they're picturing this in their mind, saying these things, puts them in a certain state. Well, when they show up, you're going to treat them in a way that makes them never want to come around you again. Yeah. And then the person who's worried thinks, what if they're in a car accident? And so now they're all stressed out. When they finally arrive there, they're going to greet them very, very differently. We have to train ourselves to focus on what we want instead of what we're afraid of. To me, being healthy is really grounded in nutrition. Honestly, what I eat and what my kids eat is super important to how we live our lives. It's why I love a company like Thrive Market because Thrive Market carries brands with the highest quality ingredients and sourcing methods. They restrict hundreds of ingredients across their food and cleaning categories. So when I go online and I use their on-site filters, I can figure out exactly my lifestyle needs and trust that what I'm getting from Thrive Market 
is what I want to take into my body. When you join Thrive Market, you're also helping a family in need with their one-for-one membership matching program. You join, they give. You can join in on the savings with Thrive Market today and get 30% off your first order plus a free $60 gift. Go to thrivemarket.com slash rach for 30% off your first order plus a free $60 gift. That's T-H-R-I-V-E market.com slash rach thrivemarket.com slash rach. This episode is brought to you by Progressive, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Plus, auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Quote now at Progressive.com to see if you could save. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. I'm a writer and um, I write about human nature. So I'm probably best known for my book, The Happiness Project. And I also wrote a book called Better Than Before, which is all about habit change, The Four Tendencies, which is all about a personality profile that divides people into four personality types. And I have a new book called Outer Order, Inner Calm, uh, Declutter and Organize to Make More Room for Happiness. And I also have a podcast called Happier with Gretchen Rubin, where um, every week I talk about ideas about how to be, you know, spoiler alert, how to be happier um, with my co-host who is my sister, Elizabeth Kraft, who's like a fancy showrunner in Hollywood. So we talk about tips and concrete, manageable ideas and hacks um, about how to be happier and give myself a handful of concrete, practical, manageable resolutions that would actually potentially make a difference. Because I think a lot of times you read about happiness and you're like, oh, it seems so abstract. It's not that I disagree with it, but I just don't even understand how to relate this to my own life. So I was trying to take these big abstract principles and figure out ways to kind of make them happen in my life. And then I just kept saying like, and then so the the happiness project is basically the report of what I tried, why I tried what I tried and what I found when I tried. Um, (laughs) you know, and so it's, um, I was sort of my own guinea pig. You know, there is no magic one size fits all solution. And people want to say like the secret to life is to get up at 6am and go running first thing or, you know, and, or, or, you know, everyone should have a hundred friends or, or, and it's like, well, maybe (laughs) every, we're all different and, and we're happiest when we have a life that reflects our own interests, our own values, our own temperament, our own, you know, um, character. And the more that I tried to unknow myself and shape my my life around what was true about me instead of some fantasy self or the way I, I assumed I should be or what other people expected me for, to be, then I became happier. So that one thing that the, like we each have to figure it out for ourselves that everyone's happiness project would be different mm-hmm. um, was, was really kind of important for me. Because I was like, well, just tell me the best things to do and I'll do them. And it's like, well, nobody can write that list. Only you can write that list for yourself. Yeah, this is a kind of a well-established psychological principle that we think that, or we assume that we act because of the way we feel, but to a very large degree, we feel because of the way we act. So it's like your brain, it, it, your brain is thinking, wow, there's so much yelling and slamming of doors around here. I guess we're really angry. And then that amplifies your feeling of anger. And so what this means is you can use this to your advantage. So like, let's say you're feeling very sluggish. If you act with more energy, if you walk more quickly, if you talk with more energy, you will start to feel more energetic. Or if you're feeling really shy and you're like, okay, I'm just going to pretend to be really friendly and outgoing, you will start to feel more outgoing. Um, If you are feeling very resentful or angry at someone in your life and you think, okay, I'm just going to show my gratitude for for this person, you will actually start to boost feelings of gratitude. Or like, you know, don't wait until you feel like kissing your sweetheart because just go ahead and kiss. And from the kiss comes the feeling of affection. So this is a a lot of times we feel much like our emotions are just happening to us, but this is a, this is one of the many ways where we can actually direct our emotional, um, our emotional state. I think it's very hard to just like sit there and change your emotional state from the inside. So I'm always looking for like, what can you do on the outside 
to go yes. in and yes. acting the way you want to feel is a way to do something. It's you can, you can make your, you can't make yourself feel loving, but you can, or at least I can't, but I can make myself kiss my husband. And then if kissing mm -hmm. my husband makes me feel loving, well then problem solved. The way you behave very much influences the way people behave toward you. And so if you walk in and you're like, oh my gosh, I'm so happy to be home. Come give me a hug. Everybody's going to be like, oh, yay, mommy someone comes running in. If you kind of slink in and are hoping nobody notices you, then they're going to be like, oh, you know, they're not going to yeah. give you that big response. And so it can, it by acting friendly, people act more friendly toward you. Like if you smile more, people smile more at you. And then you feel like you're living in a friendlier universe. So part mm -hmm. of it is also that feedback. We all face two kinds of expectations, outer expectations, like a work deadline or a request from a friend and inner expectations, my own desire to keep a New Year's resolution, my own desire to do a better job of washing my face every night. Um, that's my own inner expectation. So yes. upholders regularly meet outer and inner expectations. So they, they keep the work deadline. They keep the New Year's resolution without much fuss. They want to know what other people expect from them, but their expectations for themselves are just as important. So their motto is, discipline is my freedom. Then there are questioners. Questioners question all expectations. They'll do something if it makes sense. So they are making everything an inner expectation. If it meets their inner standard, they will do it, no problem. If it fails their inner standard, they will push back. They resist anything arbitrary, inefficient, uh, unjustified. They always need to know why. And their motto is, I'll comply if you convince me why. Then there are obligers. Obligers re readily meet outer expectations, but they struggle to meet inner expectations. And I got my insight into this tendency. This was sort of the origin of the whole tendencies framework was when a friend said to me, the thing that's weird is I know I'm happier when I exercise. And when I was in high school, I was on the track team and I never missed track practice. So why can't I go running now? Well, mm. when she had a yep. team and a coach expecting her to show up, no problem. But when she was trying to go on her own, it's a struggle. So the so obligers need outer accountability to meet those inner expectations. So their motto is, you can count on me and I'm counting on you to count on me. Then finally, rebels. Rebels resist all expectations, outer and inner alike. They want to do what they want to do in their own way, in their own time. They can do anything they want to do, anything they choose to do. But if you ask or tell them to do something, they're very likely to resist. And typically, they don't even like to tell themselves what to do. Like they wouldn't sign up for a 10 a.m. spin class on Saturday because they're going to think, I don't know what I'm going to. I just want to wake up on Saturday and see what I feel like doing. And I just that the <laughs> fact somebody's expecting me to show up is going to annoy me. Um, and their motto is, you can't make me and neither can I. The thing about it is, is that each of these tendencies includes people who are wildly successful and also big losers. And each tendency <laughs> has its strengths, but then also its corresponding weaknesses and sure. limitations. And so when you look at why somebody's successful in something, there's so many aspects of personality that, that will influence whether someone's successful or not. But what I think is true is that um, if you're looking at an individual person, they do better when they're in a place where it doesn't go against the grain of their of their natural tendency. So, like, let's say you have mm -hmm. a questioner and this questioner is in a workplace where it's like, hey, listen, we're all team players here. We get the word from corporate and we execute like we're all here together and we're here to do what you want us to do. Questioner's going to be like, I'm not here to do uh, like the fact that corporate tells us to do it. Like, I don't know if I agree with that. Like, this doesn't make any sense to me. Like no one's explaining to me why we're switching to this other software. And that might not help that questioner in that workplace, but at a different workplace, that aspect of the questioner's nature might be highly rewarded. And so I think it's a, it's a matter of fit and getting yourself into a place where uh, your, your, all of your natural characteristics are a plus. For instance, rebels often do well in sales because in sales, a lot of times the message is really, listen, man, whatever you got to do to get this sale, yeah, you got to do it. And a rebel feels totally comfortable with that. Whereas I'm like, but what are the rules and what are the deadlines? <laughs> and like, I feel like this isn't right. And, you know, he wants me to like give him a little flexibility here, but this is what corporate says, you know, like that would not, I would not do well like that. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's more about match. It's more about like finding a good match. So you're right. Upholder and rebel is a tough combination because their values are so uh, misaligned. Upholders tend to love planning and to-do lists and calendars and execution. And if anything, they can get kind of rigid. It's hard for them to be flexible. It's hard for them to change at the last minute. Um, 
they kind of want to stay on course once they're on a course. Whereas rebels have a very high value of spontaneity. Like whenever anybody's talking about spontaneity, I immediately suspect that they're a rebel. Um, they want to do what they feel like doing. If they want to change, they want to change. Yesterday, this was the priority. Today, this is the prior- priority. Um, I'm not interested in like, I-, I feel like cleaning the basement at 2 a.m. Yeah, maybe it's not the most efficient time, <laughs> but that's what I feel like doing. And so that is a tough combination. Uh, and in fact, what's interesting about rebels is when rebels are paired up, either in romance or in like a team, like a founding team of a company, if one person is a rebel, almost always the other person is an obliger. That is a very, mm. that's, that's the team that works best. If there's a rebel, almost always it's with an obliger. Yeah, Better Than Before is my book about habit change. And what I do is I identify the 21 strategies that we can use to make or break habits. And sometimes people are like, 21 is too many. Like, give me five. (laughs) But actually, (laughs) it's good to have 21 because some of them work really well for some people, but not for other people. So you want to know everything that you can choose from. So you can really cherry pick the ones that are the ones that you respond to best. And so it's like, okay. Like the strategy of abstaining. So for people who are facing strong temptation, some people do really, like me, do really well when we give something up altogether. It's easier for us to have none than to have a little bit. But then some Mm. people do better when they have a little bit or they have something sometimes and they get kind of panicky and rebellious if they give something up altogether. So the strategy of abstaining is a very, very powerful strategy for some people. And then for other people, it's not effective at all. So it's kind of like, is this on your list or off your list? And maybe you've never tried it. So try it and see if it helps you. You will either find it like, oh my gosh, it's so much easier to abstain than I ever knew. It sounds hard, but it's actually easier if you're an abstainer. And that's really true. Or you're like, no, this is kind of like making me wig out. This is not my way. And then you're like, okay, well, now you know something about yourself. Abstaining doesn't work for you. But mm-hmm. And then some of them like the strategy of convenience, strategy of inconvenience, very powerful strategies that are basically universal or the strategy of other people. We're all influenced by other people's strategies. So some of them are universal, but then some of them are more, um, are more uh, some people have an affinity to more than others. One of the strategies is called the strategy of foundation. And it talks about like the four habits that are kind of at the core of self-mastery. And self-mastery is something that we want a lot of. And you write about this all the time in your own vocabulary. Like we want to be able to meet our aims for ourselves. We want to keep our promises to ourselves. We want to like set our aims in the right places so that we you know, make ourselves happier, healthier, more productive, more creative. Um, and the strategy of foundation is um, to get enough sleep, to get some exercise, which is not like an hour spin class. It's like a 20 minute walk mm-hmm. um, to eat right, uh, eat right, which means like, don't let yourself get too hungry. Weirdly, a lot of times people eat too much because they've gotten too hungry. So you skip breakfast, you skip lunch, and then you eat everything in the vending machine or, yeah. you know. um, or, and then also, and this led to my book, Outer Order, Inner Calm, was to um, create order because, and I was very surprised by that, that the degree to which people's, people felt like if I get control over the stuff in my life, I feel more in control of myself. Um, which is kind of irrational, but it's a useful illusion. Um, but that often it's like, imagine yourself walking, you're trying to eat healthfully and you walk into a kitchen. If you walk into a kitchen where everything's put away and everything's wrapped up and the cookies are on a high shelf and the cabinets are closed and the counters are clean and the lights are off and you walk in there at 10 PM, you're going to be less likely to stick your hand into a bag of potato chips than if you walk in there and there's like stuff everywhere and there's dishes in the sink and there's bag, the potato chip bag is just open on the counter and the, the leftovers aren't, haven't been put in the fridge yet. It's just easier to like, just go in there. You, you know, you don't have that set, set, like your environment isn't supporting your self-mastery. Um, Absolutely. So those, those are the four. I think if you get those, and of course people will be like, yeah, but my whole problem is I can't get, I, I, I can't form the habit of getting enough sleep. That's what the rest of the book is about. But if you can get these four things nailed down, you've made major, major progress. What I tell people in the morning when I do my show is that my name is Stacey Flowers, real last name, because nobody believes me. Um, And I make a living through talking, just like Oprah. I do it from the stage. And from the stage, I talk about happiness and power. Um, I also do it via coaching, with me coaching women to be more amazing. And then I do it via influencing. And that's kind of where sort of our story intersected with you finding the TED Talk and then finding other content. So on the influencing side on YouTube, I've been documenting restoring my financial journey after like this big, huge, monumental public failure in my company. Um, And it started with me making about $800 a month working part time at a cafe to now earning about $10K a month net working part time in my company. And I like to kind of give people that background because it gives you the scope of like 
how I am as a person in terms of the work that I'm putting out. But I think the other thing that's really going on in my life right now that gives a little bit more of the backstory is that I'm a mom of a nearly 18-year-old human being, which (laughs) Which feels crazy. I'm in this very interesting space right now in my company and in my personal life um, with regards to those two things being there. And then the last thing that I love for people to know is that I'm an eight because the deeper we dive into on the Enneagram, I don't know if you do Enneagram. I think you you talked about that at Rise. I am the queen of Enneagram. It is our favorite conversation here at the office. And I feel like when you know someone's number, you're like, okay, wait, are you an eight seven? You gotta be an eight seven. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. I'm an eight seven. Yes. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I'm an eight seven. But I like to tell people that because before I knew that I was an eight, like I really didn't have a framework to sort of organize a lot of my experiences that led up to this moment. But the minute I took it, I was like, oh, what? Yeah. Now my life makes sense to me. It took me a moment to come. So privately, I was like, yes, I make sense. <laughs> I know why this is who I am, right? But it was a very private thing because then I was like, oh my God, like all of the things that I thought as a kid, they're true. And like now people know, like people are going to know. And so it was, it took me a little bit, but like what I like about the Enneagram is it gives you like the range of how you, like what, how you are when you're at your best and then how you are when you're under stress. And so when I looked at it, I was just like, you know what, Stacey, all of these years that you've been trying to pretend that you're not an eight, this is what's making it hard for you. Like this is what's making people have a bad reaction to you being a woman who is as powerful as you actually are. What would happen if you just kind of show up in your full eightness? Like what would happen if you did that? And honestly, that's sort of like what happened from, you know, with my TED talk going out, like that happened before I had my big fall. And so it's just like, that was already out there. So when I started documenting my financial journey, which was really hard, because it was such a contrast to the experience of doing a TED talk and traveling around the world, it was like, I have these two really contrasting experiences, but I'm like, if I'm going to talk about it, I'm going to talk about it completely. And that directly came from me wanting to own my eightness and being like, even in this space where I'm starting over at the bottom, I'm still just as powerful as I was when I was standing on stage delivering that TED Talk. And since making that decision, it's been just like the best thing ever. That's why I always like to mention it because it's just like, when you know that at the core, this is who you are, it's like, why would you... Why fight it? Like, why why rail against it anymore? And the more and more I've embraced it, the more opportunities like Rise have shown up that I've been able to say, yes, absolutely, I will surely come to your stage and do my thing. Like, versus me being like, oh, pick me, choose me. It's like, I don't have that sort of thing happening in my life as much anymore. It's more people are noticing me and they're like, oh, and I'm like, yeah been here like but it's like (laughs) the reason you didn't know is because I was afraid to really embrace the nature of it because as you said most women are not eights and if they are eights it's not it's not an easy thing to do because people automatically assume that we're gonna be like this aggressive like zero tolerance type personality and it's just like no I'm I'm all woman. I'm just a different type of woman with a whole lot of power. One of the things with the eight, so much like you, how you were dealing with anxiety and really bad coping mechanisms, I was doing the same thing because I wasn't being my core self. So one of the big issues with people who are an eight is that their deepest fear is being controlled. And so they don't like to be controlled at all. And so they challenge a lot and they rebel a lot and they rail up against things a lot because they're attempting to not be controlled. But when you're doing that and you're naturally someone who's powerful, it ends up putting you in very dramatic situations, which then turns into you then having to fight your way out of a lot of stuff. So there, I, I, I noticed that like once I, much like you, like I was in a state of, So I'll explain it this way. At the top of 2017, I experienced something called nervous exhaustion and like everything shut down. Like I couldn't think I could barely get out of bed. Like I, my body was in so much pain that like I, like I had gone to the doctor because I couldn't figure out the pain. And he was just like, yeah, you know, I think you have fibromyalgia. And I was like, absolutely. No, I don't. I was like, that is not a thing that will exist in my body like that is not a thing and it would and it was it was terrifying for me because i had had examples of women in my family who had fibromyalgia I had so so as the doctors are trying to explain to me that like you know my system is shutting down and this is what's going on i was just like you know what there has to be something that i'm doing wrong in life because my body is 
having a reaction that it shouldn't have, especially since the nervous exhaustion was preceded by the peak of success, like the peak of happiness. Like I should be on cloud nine right now, but I am in a devastating, debilitating level of depression. So anxious that like I was like afraid to leave my bedroom sometimes because I was just petrified of like, what would be out there. And so, yeah, it was the catalyst because I was like there, I have to be doing something wrong because when things are going well, like even if you're in pain, you don't realize that you could still also be doing something wrong. And I was just like, okay, so my insides don't match my outsides and I need to fix this or I'm going to have fibromyalgia. And that is not something that I want to have. I'm going to be depressed. I'm going to be bed bound. Like I don't want to live the rest of my life like this. So I need to fix this. And I have a whole entire child that I'm also parenting while all of this is going on. And it's very debilitating. And so I was just like, okay, I am here and I need to figure out how to get out of here without like, without and, and get out of here in a way where I don't come back here because I had gotten sick before, but it was never as bad as this because I think I had so much more awareness because I had had therapy in the past that the I was super aware of how bad things were. And so the first thing that I did is I was just like, okay, I know medication tends to not work for me because it numbs me out and then I can't feel and then I have this false sense of health and recovery and it just doesn't work for me. So I was just like, well, people keep saying food can change things. Let me try food. And so I found this book, The Ultra Mind Solution, where he talks about an elimination diet and how some foods cause inflammation and all this other stuff. And I love the book because it, for the first time, I learned the connection between what we eat and that being fuel for our body. Like I wasn't taught that. So I didn't know that what I was eating was affecting my body and my mind and all the other stuff. So the first thing that I did was I cleaned up my diet. And then once I cleaned up my diet and I found the foods that literally were toxic to me, like potatoes, um, <laughs> I, 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 I eliminated all of those foods. And then I, because those foods were eliminated in combination with me going to therapy, I was able to gain some clarity. And I was just like, okay, now what are you going to do? Because you need to rebuild. And at the time I couldn't work. I couldn't get on stage. I remember I had a speaking engagement and I was so depressed that like they called my name. I went to the 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 microphone stood there and as I was looking out at everybody like I was so overwhelmed that all I could do was walk off the stage and walk out of the building I didn't say anything I didn't take a like it was horrible so I knew I wasn't ready to get back to like that level work because I was just like I don't know if you can recover from that um, but I was just like you need to make money because you haven't been working and you have a kid and you have to figure this out so I was just like okay well I need to restore my financial dignity I don't have the emotional capacity to you know use my degrees and go to work or use my experience and rebuild a company, but I do know how to work. So let me find a job that will allow me to be able to work, but it won't be mentally and emotionally taxing because I really need to focus on healing full time. So after, so my diet was under control. Then I made the commitment to restore my financial dignity, got a part-time job working at a cafe. And then I was just like, okay, well, money seems to be a big stressor for you because the money coming in stressed me out, but also the amount of money going out stressed me out. So I was like, I need to get my finances in order. What better way to do that than Dave Ramsey and then telling everybody yeah. on the internet about it so I can get some accountability. So I literally like opened up my computer and was like, hey, internet, I don't know how to deal with money. I know how to make it, but I don't know how to manage it. And I'm going to learn how right in front of you guys because the internet is going to hold me accountable. And what ended up happening is... I, I, I realized, too, that I heal very well through talking out loud. That's why therapy is incredibly effective for me. And what ended up happening is that as I was documenting my financial journey in real time, I really started to clean up my finances. And the more my financial dignity was restored, the more like mental and emotional health and healing was brought back to me in combination with my diet changes, in combination with me only working part time. And then slowly but surely, like I was like, OK, well, I feel like I can handle one revenue stream in my company. What would it be like? to monetize YouTube since more of you guys are following me. So then I started to monetize and then I just slowly but surely like rebuilt my company to a place where I was able to earn consistent enough income for me to be able to um, resign from working part-time at the cafe and replace my income with my company. And then I'm working in my company, my income is replaced and I'm like, okay, now we're going to put ourselves back out on the stage because this is your top talent. This is really what you want to do. But as you come back out here, you have to come back out here with the wisdom that you gained in rebuilding your life this way and changing yourself in this lifestyle because this is who you really are. You cannot get back up from this and be anybody else but this person that you've been with in this very dark season. And so I would say that that's actually 
the most like detailed practical way of how I actually walked my way back into the power. The Rachel Hollis podcast is produced by me, Rachel Hollis. It's edited by Andrew Weller and Jack Noble. It's your time. Join global thought leader, executive producer, and New York Times bestselling author T.D. Jakes and today's leading culture shifters for an experience unlike any other. At the 2024 International Leadership Summit, spiritual and business leaders can gain the practical tools they need to maximize their timing for success. With world-class discussions, breakout sessions, and networking opportunities, this is where your dreams turn into reality. Timing is everything, and your time is now. March 21st through 23rd in Dallas, Texas. Register today at thisisils.org. Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. With Capella University's game-changing FlexPath learning format, you gain relevant skills you can apply to your career right away. Earn your degree from an accredited university and be confident in the quality of your education. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Capella University is accredited by the Higher Learning Commission. Learn more at capella.edu slash accreditation.